Hello, everyone. Welcome to Peter Pay Real Estate Show. I'm your host, William Morales. And on today's show, I have Kisan Patel, entrepreneur, author, and MA expert. MA expert. Kisan is the founder and CEO of MA Science with a passion to drive the MA industry forward. He has an MA advisor for 10 years, which he's so large companies such as commercial banks and hotel chains. In 2012, he noticed teams lacked efficient technology to manage deals and created Deal Room and MA Lifecycle Management Platform. In 2016, he started MA Science Podcast, devoting his time to creating a platform where all best practitioners could share their best practices, lessons, and learn from real life deals. Kisan has created the MA Science Academy. Kisan, thank you so much for being on Pay to Pay Real Estate Show. How are you, sir? Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, my pleasure. So, so Kisan, did you know early on that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Was this something that you grew up with? Did it fall into your lap as you got a little older? What was that? What was your journey? That's a good question. I think I was exposed to business at an early age. My parents ran a, a motel business and grew up in a small town. And, um, uh, I don't know. Always like math, things with numbers, grasped onto the concept that business is fundamentally around buying low and selling high. Right. So always found something to buy and sell when I was a kid. And uh yeah, it just stuck with me. Always had an interest in business. So did you when business, did you business and yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so you've been pretty much in business, what, maybe since your teenage years or middle, maybe a little later than that? Yeah, probably 12, 13 years old. I remember my <laughs> business was starting a tobacco shop from my locker in junior high school. I used to peddle cigarettes, cigars, chewing tobacco. Yeah. <laughs> things from there. So when did you realize, um, was it again at, at that age, 12, 13, 14, that you realized that a nine to five job wasn't for you? Uh, we're not putting nine to five jobs down, but I'm just saying for some people, it's just, they're not made for that. So did you realize that was your path? I, I don't know. I think in my head, I thought at some point I'd get a career. It was probably till I failed out of undergrad that maybe that's when I had more of the realization that the traditional path career path isn't meant for me and i remember working with a family member who owned a, a number of fast food restaurants in the south side of chicago it was a tough work experience but started getting me in the track of developing strong work ethic and it was in that experience where i aspired to get into real estate thinking that's going to be the journey to circumvent the traditional career path of having a college degree and, and getting a nice corporate gig. And that's what I started doing. I, I got into residential real estate sales, was absolutely terrible at it, wound up joining a startup of um, M&A advisory practice. The mm. founder just sold his consulting practice and wanted to build something focused on that. And that's where I first started getting traction. I thoroughly enjoyed looking over a company financials, building the narrative on where the opportunity was to create value in that business and sell it. Right. And that's, and that's where you are right now, right? So when did you start Deal Room? What was it in the marketplace that you saw that, um, that you needed something like Deal Room to, to, um, to surface? 
Well, it wasn't so straightforward. It was a little bit of a twist and turn of a journey where I spent about 10 years advising companies. I had my own practice at the time. The recession happened in 2007 and wanted to do something else. I uh, got involved with a tech startup that failed miserably. But in that experience, I was managing software engineers and got to see firsthand how they would utilize project management tools to make it more efficient to manage developing software and kept reflecting back to my M&A experience, thinking, why isn't there a project management tool for managing these massive, largest transactions in the world, M&A? And that's what led to the inspiration to start Deal Room, essentially to build a project management tool for M&A. Wow. And when did that start? What year was that? Was that just recent that you came up with that idea? That was in 2012. Okay, so it's been 10 years. Wow. And tell us about the M&A science portion of the business. That emerged around 2017. A good friend okay. of mine, Andy. Andy was my marketing guy. If I needed some advice about marketing, I'd go hit him up. Uh, and when I talked to him, the one idea he kept coming back to was starting a podcast. I remember the first time he told me, he's like, you should do a podcast. I'm like, what the hell's a podcast? <laughs> I had no idea. And he kept after me about it. And I think like after the sixth time he told me, I said, all right, well, why don't I give it a shot? And I uh, started with some minimal effort. And fast forward six years later, this turned into a whole digital biz media business where the brand essentially um, has grown faster than our deal room brand and it's become our umbrella brand. We've ended up creating other product lines. We publish books. We've started an online academy program. Mm -hmm. We've been able to provide consultancy services, talent search, all stemming from the podcast and growing this community audience faster and understanding what their needs are and being able to create solutions based off of that feedback. That's amazing that, uh, you know, you hesitated to do a podcast uh, kind of, and then when you did jump on it, now you turned it into, uh, like I said, a digital type of business. And um, we'll definitely talk more about your podcast. So I wanted to ask you, what is uh, private equity and can anyone start such a venture? Since this is pretty much the main theme about today's podcast about private equity. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, but I mean, private equity, it's an institutional asset class. I mean, there's different ways you can look at private equity because at the end of the day, it's private capital. Mm -hmm. The stuff that's pretty common when you think of the big names in the market, your Blackstones and KKR and Carlisle, they're operating off of structured funds mm -hmm. where you create a fund and you build an investment thesis and then you would solicit investments from... LPs or limited partners, which oftentimes consist of larger institutions like your pension funds, your endowments, any of these institutions managing large, large sums of capital. Uh, and then you would try to get an allocation of some sort into your fund. You would then uh, get your fund subscribed, have that capital to go deploy. A lot of those private equity firms are leveraging the capital. So mm -hmm. they're looking at different debt. So you can take the billion dollar fund and try to invest out $10 billion uh, and, and, and capture a higher return. That's a traditional model, but now you're seeing a lot of variants. There are 
these uh, search fund models is a good example where maybe there is an allocated capital um, or to take that back, there's an allocated capital, but it's based off of an operator finding a single asset to purchase. Mm -hmm. And that they would then in turn operate it, run the business, sell it, and eventually give a return back to the principal investors. Uh, then you could have a, a fundless sponsor, which you don't have a structured fund, but then you would assemble the capital as you identify the opportunity of the business you're looking to acquire. So then you can acquire multiple businesses, but have different configurations of investors in those businesses. That's another model we've seen emerge. Uh, yeah, there's sort of different ways, but traditional, you create a structured fund. Can anybody do it? I, I think it's being mindful of being realistic of as an investor, what are you going to be looking for? Right. You're probably going to be looking for a seasoned management team that has a track record of doing those type similar investments that you're looking to allocate capital towards. Uh, and if you don't have that, if you're somebody that's, you know, come from a different background, you're just doing marketing consulting or something of that sort, that's probably not going to fly as well. Right. So there's some reality check in getting a sense of if you're going to, raise large institutional capital, they're probably looking for that kind of background, whether you're banking or working in another private equity firm, something that's very relatable to managing large sums of capital. Um, and people want confidence that they're going to get a strong return on their investment. Uh, I, I think there's the other piece is just networking. Even if you're on the smaller side, maybe you're you're an operator trying to buy that business and get funding from that sort. But it's it's who's in your network? Are you really spending time with all these potential investors? It takes a while. I think that part gets overlooked. A lot of people assume when you go raise that it's a short time timing effort, but it's it's really not. I, I think those relationships take a good time to nurture, and you should develop those relationships a year ahead of an event. Do you think, um, you know, when, when you're starting out on something like this, you know, you want to have your own type of private equity to invest, whether in real estate, like it's funny as you talk about Blackstone, um, I read about a month ago that they're allocating about $50 billion worth of money so they could buy real estate when the market starts turning, you know, down, like, you know, now that you got the interest rates went up again, um, and they had allocated that much. And I'm like, geez, $50 billion. I mean, my God, how many investors do they have? So you're, you're saying, uh, Kisan, we're talking with Kisan Patel of the Deal Room, m and Science. Cal uh, uh, cultivate relationships, network, build some type of track record of your own that you've done deals that then people could trust you that, hey, this guy's done some deals. Maybe we can invest maybe a small amount. Um, are there any regulations or rules that you need uh, to start as a private equity uh, business, or do we we have to file with the was it the SEC? And uh, yeah, I see the smile on your face. Well, yeah, I'm trying to remember my rules here because I forgot all this stuff. I used to know it. I I, I find and don't told me to this. Go find an advisor. <laughs> I think it's around thirty million. If you are managing over thirty million in, right. in some private capital structure. Uh, then you need to register with the SEC. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I think there are some exceptions with smaller amounts of capital. But yeah, it's uh, I think it should be regulated all period because 
the stuff on the lower end tends to be the, the shadier managers of, of private capital. Yeah, I definitely agree there. <laughs> I definitely agree there. So when you started your business, right, let, let, and let's go back to the uh, M&A uh, science of it. Well, again, going back to uh, the marketplace, right, we're talking about mergers and acquisitions. Um, are, are we looking at all types of business that might be, whether it's real estate or retail or anything like that, are we looking at those types of businesses to get in, maybe uh, uh, get in, 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 into, let's say, into your place, maybe restructure any type of debt and then sell it, like you said, uh, buy low, sell high? Did my question make sense at all? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a it's variable. It really depends on the strategy. I think that's the thing where we're seeing a lot more creativity in terms of investment strategies for various private funds. Right. Um, so it's it's that's the thing to be really mindful of. We're not operating a market where you buy a business, sit on it, and sell it for more money. Right. You got to have a strategy to create value, and that that's just a very competitive market. There's a lot of capital out there stuff gets bitted up you're definitely paying a, a price for an asset in this market what are you going to do to generate value what are you going to do that's going to increase are you going to consolidate an industry and play uh, against economies of, of scale are you um you know sort of really doing something unique and innovative do you have a business that's got a strong distribution and continue adding new products to that distribution channel I think that that's the big thing to to really figure out is what does that exactly look like? Because if you have a good strategy in play, it gives you more room in terms of some of those early deals may not be the best deals you do, and you're probably going to end up learning a lot from it. Um, but if you have that good sound strategy in place, it'll carry you forward in the long run. Right. Um, when you started deal room and M&A science, were there any early mistakes that you made that you were able to overcome? Uh, at the beginning of your career with the, with these two companies, um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? If, Many. if you don't mind, <laughs> uh, at uh, least you're you're honest about that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean there there just is. Well, that's the thing. Those are the good lessons you learn from is when you make your own mistakes. I I, I think the one was the way you get feedback. I, I I feel like even for earlier first time entrepreneurs, you tend to fall in love with your ideas and, and sort of champion them in a way that you get everybody else to mm. say, yes, that's a good idea. When you really want to do the opposite, you want to challenge it in a unbiased way to find out where the flaws are. Mm. And I think if we caught into that earlier, that would have helped shorten our path to get to where we are today. But it, it did take a while to learn that the hard way where I had a lot of assumptions I built a product without validating those assumptions and it failed miserably in the market. And I had to do a complete reboot and go back to the drawing board. And um, we basically had these assumptions that we would build a marketplace for the middle market. Mm -hmm. And the middle market operates completely different than the lower market. So it, uh, we took it out there. We got about 1300 users, 200 deals on the platform and realized we just built a sophisticated dumpster for middle market deals and, uh, end up scratching it and shifted the business to be a management platform that when we went back, 
and did discovery when we did about 40 interviews with different cohorts that would represent the customers we're looking to serve. And the common theme that we saw was that practitioners wanted a better way to manage their deals, especially those mid-sized to larger deals as opposed to sourcing them. And that's where we shifted our focus on the that management side, which is what the original goal was. You know, we just got caught up thinking, oh, we have to solve for the marketplace, the sourcing part first right uh and build this real comprehensive so that's like the whole feature creep type of thing and uh you, when you do a series of those interviews and you try to be as unbiased as possible just asking what's your biggest challenge and and things like that um that that's that that feedback is what helps us shape what we're solving for it validates it I think in a lot of ways you discover things that you weren't thinking about solving for, or you look at them in a different way because you're getting language directly from that prospective customer. Uh, that language is really powerful in allowing you to better explain what you're trying to build to potential investors and, and the market. Uh, as you start mocking up what you're going to create as a solution, continue taking that similar approach for feedback mm -hmm. it is so much cheaper to make changes when you're at a mock-up stage yeah as opposed to having functional code in production so the the more and, and that's what we used to do is just give a student do basic mock -up. i wasn't a big fan of wireframes because i feel like some people don't understand wireframes it's a little more of a technical drawing right so that's why i'd rather invest to get an entry-level designer just create some basic mock-ups and we uh, make changes on those. It's way, way more cost-effective till you feel like you got something dialed in that's really ready to build. And I think when you do do this, you're building some advocacy that's pretty genuine. That You are essentially lining up some of your first customers by bringing them into this journey of getting the help to iterate your concept, iterate the the that solution that you're going to take to market. Um, I think the thing that we also screwed up on was we didn't take the similar approach while we're getting validation. The solution is to validate the go-to-market mm -hmm. because I, I think same thing, entrepreneur, maybe you're getting assumptive about it. You see what the competitive products are doing and you start allowing that to influence your go-to-market. So now your go-to-market looks very similar to what the existing products are out there when that that's not the right approach because they're at a different level of maturity right. you operate on a whole different balance sheet and in fact if you're trying to disrupt them you should be disruptive about your go-to-market right wow so, so yeah, go ahead. yeah how, how do you keep that same mindset how do you keep getting yeah. a feedback loop on, on your actual go-to-market so that you can do something different there as well and that's the critical part of being successful is having a strong go-to-market you know, I wanted to follow up with that because, you know, I remember I was, uh, I think I read a, a book called Decoding Greatness, and it was about basically almost modeling a certain company or whatever that you uh, that you like. But it's just what you said, you know, you bring the same product that maybe, you know, competitor A has, but now what's different from yours? Did you realize, once you realized that you did that, how did you make that uh, slight change? Was it a slight change you made in the marketplace when you realized that maybe competitor a that you were you had the same product that they do or maybe the same service was there a, a subtle change that you guys made or was it like you said you know maybe going back to the drawing board and 
modify, you know, systems and, and things like that in place. On the product or the go to market? Yeah. On the go to market. On the go to market, I think that's the we we just went out there and realized the way they were selling, they had much deeper pockets and there was no way to compete. I mean, they were essentially taking people out extravagant for, for venues, spending a lot of money on the, those to build a, the relationship, even though they had a subpar product, but that investments would ultimately paid off. Right. So and, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I mean, for us to, that's where we, we ended up realizing we need to change it. And we shifted our strategy to focus more on inbound marketing. Mm -hmm. And that that approach uh, allowed us to get ahead in a lot of ways to be able to attract customers to us. Um, but it also gave us some runway to figure out where in the market we wanted to focus. Because I think that was the other thing was we were trying to go with a very wide net. Yeah, And then after we spent some time, we identified that the market we thought were going to be our early adopters wasn't. It was this different market selling directly to the corporates. And then when we shifted focus there, that's where even today we get most of our traction from is the corporations as opposed to sell-side advisors. Right. So to um so what are you guys are looking to do in the next, you know, in the next three to six months for both, let's say deal room and MA science? Are you guys are, are you running both of them at the same time or are they different type of platforms that you could have a management team do both and you oversee both uh, companies um, during the course of a day? Well, we look at m and Science, our umbrella brand, essentially, that we have a variety of products and services mm -hmm. tested within that portfolio. So we run an academy program. Talk more about after. that. We have an online school. That was one of the white spaces we identified that a lot of corporations don't have a go-to platform to mm -hmm. train their team members. Right. They can make some in-house training, but it's not going to be consistently up to date on the evolving best practices in the industry. If they need to pull people in from their company to get involved with M&A, they've never done M&A before. How do you get them up to speed as quick as you can? That's where we created this academy platform to help accelerate the development of, of M&A skills. And then the deal room offering continue to evolve from a diligence management platform to a full lifecycle management. So it mm -hmm. covers the pi pipeline sourcing, the diligence integration. And then when 2018, we spun off a data room product in the industry, they use virtual data rooms. They still operate on the same per page billing model that they uh, utilized 20 years ago when people would come to your office to scan documents all day, yeah. put them on servers. They haven't gotten rid of that because it's highly profitable. So we built a product just to compete head to head in that space as a self-service, you know, fair price option. And uh, some of the other little services that we've been able to uh, build for talent search and consulting has come along the ways as well. So that's where many science sits as more of a portfolio brand. Right. I think the brand's got some cachet. People find it something they want to inquire learn more about and then our jill room still sits as our, our lead flagship product you know I, it, it's just amazing how you know when you have the a, a certain amount of team members or you know the product space that's what's happening outside of, of you know in the market i should say um and and you could get the team you could get the the deal structure you get the systems in place and everything can 
you hope it runs smoothly. So, so for you, Kison, like I said, in the next three to six months, are you are you looking to expand nationwide? Are you only in certain parts of the country? Or, or, are we all in 50 states? How is your product um, uh, distributed? Uh, we're about 80% of the U.S. And I'd say okay. 20% goes to Europe and maybe a few obscure countries out there. Okay. <laughs> are you looking to uh, expand a lot more than that in the next maybe three to six months next year? Or I think it's more about how we sell. Like we currently okay. sell through inbound. And now that we have that and have identified where we sell really well, right. our next stage is to build an outbound sales motion to go directly uh, to those companies that would fit well with our solution. Right. So you, um, what are you talking about? Maybe timeline three to six months or... That's we're, we're in progress right now. Now, okay, <laughs> yeah, just hiring teams to to help. So, listen, first of all, Keith, I want to thank you so much for being on Peter Peer Real Estate. So, I, I really appreciate it. And just a, a few more things before I let you go. What keeps you motivated? Um, what is it that when you wake up in the morning? What is it that the first thing you want to do, and 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 that keeps you like not up at night, but you know, you're gung ho to get up in the morning to do. Um, you know, to serve your customers and serve your team? I think it's just it's a burning desire to win. I, you got to remind yourself what, mm. what you're in this for. It's a mindset thing. Sometimes you don't have those mornings when you wake up so bright and sunshine. But if you can get yourself there, if you can find some little trigger, find some affirmation, whatever it is, put a little right. calendar reminder to yourself to you know crack a smile and get your head in the right space that's important because that's what allows you to drive forward is when you can amplify that burning desire to win and just go at it go at it where you're uh putting all you have into it i, I think that's that's that determination is where you got to get to make sure you have that level of motivation be consistent around it so a lot of entrepreneurs they tend to be optimistic yeah you, you, and sometimes you got to find ways to trigger that in yourself because it's hard you every day is an up and down day and you don't have the best days you're gonna knock it out of the park yeah. but you always got to find your way to rebound and strive forward regardless the ones that lose are the ones that quit so as long as that's your mantra that you're not giving up you're not going to quit you'll find a way to get through yeah I, I i like what you said you know having that burning desire to win you know whether it's using affirmations or like i said have a a, a reminder on your phone or or you're on your computer um any books you would like to recommend because i think you have one or two books in you about m a about private equity pretty much your you know your extensive knowledge of of, of business practices I that's let's see here some books to read you know really I'd say one is get a good habit of reading books because as you build a business and that journey evolves in shape yeah you're probably going to need to read books on different topics and learn things as you go and that's the real tool is to be able to read books for what you want to learn but I, I think the one for myself that I always keep referring to over and over is just listen by Mark Golston it's about listening to people it's about empathy I think that's the one thing is in this is so much about relationships. Um, there's, there's relationships and how you build a team, hire people, get along. But I, I think there's relationships in your own professional development that sometimes gets overlooked. We, we tend to look at blogs, books we can read to yeah. help become better professionals. But 
there's also peers, the people you put yourself around and how you learn from them. Yeah. That's what enables you to be a better professional. And if you can connect with people better, empathize with them, it's not only good for your relationships in general, but it'll help you learn better and develop better professionally. So yeah, I mean, as much as it sounds like a soft, touchy subject, I, I think learning empathy and it's come up in a number of books. You can go to old school, Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. Great book. You can yeah. go to uh, Chris Voss is never split the difference. Um, another good negotiation book, but they, they all had, they can go read some child raising books and they'll talk to you a lot about empathy, but yeah. I think that's worth reading anything on and just, even if you're somebody that's not naturally empathetic, it's really, really helpful to help right. you uh, be better at managing and developing relationships. No, I, you know, it's funny. I, I always heard about the Dale Carnegie book. I remember I read that years ago. I definitely got to get that back. And I, uh, I never heard of Just Listen. So I'll definitely uh, look that up. And another book I heard of, Never Split the Difference. Um, if somebody wanted to get in contact with you, what's the best way? Is there a, pr a preferred method for, you, uh, for people to contact Probably you? Probably LinkedIn. I don't okay. know, my inbox is pretty noisy these days. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll put it on the show notes, LinkedIn, yeah. Anywhere else or? Link to our website, mascience.com. Anybody's interested in learning about M&A, we have over 1,500 pages of content between our two sites we operate. But um, wow. yeah, we always welcome it. There's a, a lot lot to learn about the industry. It's a fun industry too. It's, uh, yeah, it seems like it. I mean, you know, you're making it sound like, hey, you know, I'm not saying that anybody could get in, but, you know, once you, like I said, it's a bunch of SEC, SEC rules that you have to follow and, you know, you have to build trust, you have to build some type of uh, uh, equity, personal equity and business equity in the business. But first of all, Kisan, I want to thank you so much for being on Peer to Peer Real Estate Show. I, I really, really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, everyone, that was Kisan Patel, and you can find them at mascience.com. That's M as in Mary, A as in Apple, science.com. Kisan, thank you so much for being on Peer-to-Peer -peer Real Estate Show. Really appreciate it. You can find me at peer-to-peerrealestate.com. That's peer, the number two, peerrealestate.com. Check out our past shows, check out our blog, and check out our resource page. Also, please go to Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, leave a review, tell us how we can make this show better. And before I go, guys, just a couple more things. Do not give up on your dreams. Fight for it, guard it, protect it. Don't let anyone talk you out of it. And I really believe if you keep the momentum going, good things will happen. On behalf of Peer to Peer Real Estate Show, I'm William Morales. Until next time, thanks, everybody. Have a great day, and please stay safe.